Thank you for joining us. So today's theme is sales a force for good. And the first question I would like to kick off with is if there were only five things that we could prioritize over the next 12 months for us to focus our attention on and really work at fixing in order to make sales a force for good, what would be your five? So let's start with you, Paul. I think the most important part of all of it to be able to do all of the things that you've just talked about is prospecting. If you've got a strong pipeline of relevant prospects that you can work with then you're, and you're constantly building, then all the being yeah, of being of help and, and supporting and being a problem solver becomes a lot easier moving forward. And I think people have to start to recognize that I work with a lot of small businesses and their most important aspect of the selling and their business almost is just prospecting and finding appropriate prospects in their target market that they can go out and work with. The right customers or the right prospects at the right time and the right customers. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Moeed? I took your question in a different way, which is how could we as, as those change agents make sales a force for good? So for me, and I've given this a bit of thought, you know, really, I think we need to start at the grassroots. And what I mean by that is we need to be there showing young people, and Marcus, you and I had this discussion before, but we need to show young people how sales really should be and not should yeah. be based upon based upon what we think it should be, but based upon the results, based upon overwhelming results that show that this approach to sales has the best results for the long term and it creates a, a, a measurable quality for everyone else. So actually, I think in the grassroots element, we need to talk about that. So, you know, the, the schools, when people are deciding on what careers they want to forge in the future before they even go to university, and also at university as well, because sales is so underrepresented around the world when it comes to the universities, that they are being influenced by um, massive influencers like Grant Cardone and others. And, and I'm sorry, I mean, I, I, some of the stuff is okay, but I disagree with a lot of what he says around sales, in my opinion. But he's a heavy, heavy influencer to that community. And also, I mentor. You know, final year graduate students in Manchester University, which is my old alma mater. And they come to me when uh, it's almost as if, and I fell into this as well, it's almost as if they're not happy with neuroscience or, or whatever it is that they are studying in university. And they are exploring other opportunities and they've, they've come across sales. They want to be involved in sales because they see it as a path to business and understanding business and achieving whatever it is they want to but they have a very warped view of what it takes to be successful in sales. And I think in my, in my opinion, we need to start at that grassroots because other people who are far older are, you know, they've been conditioned for many, many years. It's going to be a lot more fearful for them to have to make those changes. So I think we need to get involved at that level and start to communicate what sales is about, how it should work. Where is its value? How does it, connect to other things how can it make you a fulfilled person as well in terms of your career and business i love that and then the other element is you know work so i work with a lot of junior salespeople. so those salespeople who they're not sdrs so they're not the people that are scheduling the meetings necessarily although i do work with it's more those who are taking on the full sales responsibility having spent two years in the sdr bdr role and they're about one to three years, maybe up to five years within their career. And they are not being given support by a lot of the sales managers. They're being trained in the 90s methods of doing sales. They are incredibly confused because there are so many books, so many courses, so many people touting what they do out there. And they're just confused. They are overwhelmed. And what likely happens is, as they're overwhelmed, the pressure and pressure builds up, builds up, builds up, and then they start to take a more direct, more adversarial approach to their sales because they feel the time pressure. If I don't get this right, I'm going to get fired. So I think the other stages, we need to be there at that level as well, right? We need to be that other voice that shows them 
hey, there is another way to doing this. It's going to be scary because you're going to go against the grain and I've gone against that grain and I know how that feels. But if we're going to be that, that force for good and that change, I really think we need to get at that level. Yes, we do need to talk to the senior level people. That's going to be a far slower burn. But hey, more and more decision makers, and according to Gartner, are now millennials. And they buy in a different way. So we have an opportunity now because our buying community is changing to do it in a way that actually is quite closely aligned to them. 60% of managers today are millennials. So we, we need to adapt. I think the old school, empty suit, commissioned breath, product vomiting brochure in a suit never really had a place. But now more than ever, they are irrelevant. And salespeople who sell like that are going to go the way of the dinosaur because customers now have a very different buying journey. The buying journey of business-to-business customers mirrors very closely a consumer's uh, buying journey. Absolutely. They have access to the sum total of human knowledge with a few taps of the keyboard and a few clicks of the mouse. They have choice. And what they are overwhelmed by, to a large extent, is the tyranny of choice, but also the daunting task of what's ahead of them. And I think fundamentally where we need to start is salespeople need to stop being forced onto two weeks of product training. And what they need is an education in business acumen. They need to understand how a business runs, operates, what the different job functions do, how all the moving parts interrelate, how they're interdependent. And if we don't do that, what we will end up with is a bunch of irrelevant people who just interrupt and waste people's time. I, I couldn't agree more. There's a whole section of what I do that's very public on YouTube and other podcasts where we just talk about business acumen. So we analyze financial statements of companies so that you can understand the story behind that business, almost the character of that company. And you're absolutely right. right? I, they need to understand, because sales is a business game. They need to understand what is shaping... What is shaping the business? What is shaping the decisions that those, 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 those decision makers are making? And it helps them stand out. So I couldn't agree more. The question I asked to begin with is if there were only five things that we were going to prioritize in order to genuinely make sales a force for good globally, and those five things would get us 80% of the way there, what would those five things be? That's a little bit... Uh confusing because of the poll that you created on LinkedIn has only four options, not five. I'm limited by the number of options. And uh, by clicking on that poll... There are three types of people who can do maths, them that can and them that can't. (laughs) In the poll, you can only choose one option, and uh, you're asking which are the five things. No, 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 you can pick up an option. My one chosen option... Forget the poll. They, yeah, they, yeah. The other uh, was the button I wanted you to press. But uh, you know that famous uh, famous story about Sir Rocco Forti, the founder of the Forti Hotels uh, Empire and eventually multiple businesses, how he started his business. He started with an ice cream parlor and he did it immediately after the war when all of London was bombed and, and uh, much of it destroyed. There weren't many, many venues and premises that he could rent or buy. And he asked the real estate agent to find him a nice place, uh, which is suitable for an ice cream parlor, but is not too expensive and is well located and is ready to move in. And uh, the real estate had a bit difficult task. And he offered him three choices. The story is told in an interview by this real estate agent. And he says, I found him three places. One was completely uh, destroyed by the bombs. It needed too much refurbishment, but it was dirt cheap. The other was fantastic. It was a previous tea room or tea parlor that was Victorian and with uh, crystal chandeliers and and, uh, mirrors on the walls and stuff like that. The third choice was neither too good nor too bad. It it wasn't too expensive, but either not, not in a too good condition. It was like halfway. 
Sir Rocco chose the third choice, and the real estate agent tells the story to the, to the journalist. He says, and I ask him, why did you choose the middle choice? Do you always make middle choices? He says, no, I don't make middle choices. I always make the top choice. I said, what's top about this place? He said, I stood in front of each one with a stopwatch, and I counted the number of mouths passing by. <laughs> uh, that's the, that's uh, the famous rule. That's the famous rule uh, about real about retail before the internet. Uh, there, there were three important things in retail, and they were number one, location; number two, location; and number three, location. Yeah. So I bring that story because of your four choices poll, where I chose the first option, which was about customers. And if you ask me which are the five most important things <laughs> in sales, I would say that. Customers, number two, customers, number three, customers, and all five would be customers. So, customer focus. Absolutely. And again, them, working for them, doing everything for them is the, the key to the tent, as they say. Absolutely. And so, I'm going to share my screen for a second uh, for those of you who've just joined. And this is a framework, it's a model that I'm working on at the moment. It's by no means complete, but you'll notice at the heart of it is buyer safety and everything that we do puts the customer at the heart of it. We need to deliver trust and earn uh, their trust. We need to be trustworthy. Uh, we must be relevant and we must be of service. I think the last 40 or 50 years, has seen sales move away from being a service profession. And service does not mean servitude. You'll see in the bottom right-hand corner, there's mutual respect and equal business stature. To earn that position, you have to be somebody who is a business person, who understands how businesses work, and can help someone at whichever level in the organization you're engaging with, because you understand what they are trying to achieve. You understand their outcomes. Now, that then brings us to the next critical point, that we must be ready to surrender our outcome in favor of delivering their outcome. And that builds on what Vlad has just said. The reality here is that most salespeople are so fixated on then pipeline, their quota, making the transaction happen, that they don't understand the sale is not complete until the customer comes back and says, bloody hell, best decision we ever made. You blew us away. You helped us achieve as what we wanted and more. And this then speaks to another really important issue, which is, I think, fundamentally, the way we measure and the way we compensate salespeople drives unintended consequences. And I think what we should be, one of the big areas I think we should look at is compensation. Um, historically, new business has been the golden child. And account growth teams, and I'm not going to call them account management, because account management is zookeeping. You just feed the animals and they stay, uh, stay alive. Account growth is about being their partner. It's about helping them achieve more and more outcomes and working with them over time along the way in order to be of constant value because customers do not buy your product or service. They rent the outcome for as long as the outcome is relevant to them. There are plenty of happy customers who love the experience, but the outcome is, has changed and so you are no longer relevant. And I believe part of the challenge is that salespeople, because they don't have business acumen and not having those conversations and bringing back that insight and feeding it into product and service development. And so I think compensation needs to change. And we pay a little bit for winning an account and a lot for helping the customer achieve their outcome and then reporting that back. A lot for optimizing their levels of utilization and adoption, because after all, who hasn't bought a product? I mean, th you know, think of Office 365. How many of you use all the functionality in there? Yeah, we use font size, uh, bold capitals and underline, and cut and paste. And that's pretty much it. And you're paying for all that other stuff. Well, you could really be using it 
to communicate more effectively. And that's just one component. So I think we need to focus on win-win. We need to be ready to get down and dirty in the trenches and help do difficult work together. And that's the basis of partnership. We are interdependent. We help each other get better. And we need to be ready to confront issues when they are difficult. We need to be ready to challenge them when they're going to do something self-harming or when they're overstepping a boundary. We need to be vulnerable and tell them, honestly, we may not be the right provider and we absolutely must communicate with clarity. So, Paul, let me bring you back in because I don't think, with all the broadband issues, I don't think you've got a fair crack at the question. So let's hear from you again. I think that, I mean, certainly, well, as you know, I mean, my predominant experience is in the UK where sales is the job that you get when you can't get a proper job. <laughs> so in absolute terms, it's getting the, the individuals themselves to present as professionals, to present as professionals and actually have the wherewithal and add value to you know the given situations, which is you know fundamentally what you're saying. But you know, at the same time, getting them to grow as individuals. I mean, what happens is you know, when I started a thousand years ago, then it was flogging boxes. And then you sort of learn that it's not it's not just about a box. And then it's you know, then in actual fact, you're not selling boxes. What you're selling is a solution. And you get to my age now, and I can hold a, a business conversation with anybody in the country because I've had 30 years' experience of doing it. But getting that, instilling that into people and getting people that don't see it as a job that you just fall into when you can't get a proper one is actually quite difficult. One of the outcomes that I would love to happen as a result of Sales of Force for Good delivering the outcomes that we want is that sales becomes an aspirational career choice. It's something that goes along with airline pilot, fireman, doctor, engineer. And it's not something that we should be embarrassed about. Moeed can probably uh, speak to this in more detail, but there are a couple of studies uh, uh, come out in December 2020 that suggest that 30% of buyers in business-to-business want a 100% seller-free buying experience. And that something like 67% of buyers consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt. Moe, let me bring you in on this. Yeah, so let's start with the first um, the first stat that you provided. Yeah, it's, it's 33%. And this was a study done by Gartner. And, and really, this came from, you know, the COVID pandemic accelerated this, this situation even more. It's not just about the millennials. It gave the buyers an opportunity to say, right, we can finally, and, and, and this, these are the words that, that someone told me as a buyer, we can finally distance ourselves a little bit more from the salespeople. Damn. That was what this person said to me, right? We, we now have a chance where we're going to grab back more of the ownership, right? Less of the hassle of working with salespeople we can now shape the buying process with much stronger influence. So it's not just that they don't want any sales interaction. Now, they don't want any sales influence either, right? Because prior to that stat, there was a whole whole research being done around, you know, only 19% of the buyer's process involves speaking to a supplier directly, i.e. the salespeople. The rest of that time is just them doing their own research, speaking to their network, their peers, online research to understand the options available to them, right? And when I say options, most salespeople think, oh, the, the options means the, which supplier to go with. No, 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 no. Options is what decision do I need to make? What business decision do I need to make? And once they go down whichever fork in the road, then they look at the suppliers that can fulfill that. So we're being commoditized year by year. And, and you know, how they do business, how they buy, where they buy, who they buy from, that, all those channels of buying, they're veering them away from salespeople as much as possible. That's um, really damning. It is. is it, that, it's, it's, but that's because... Sorry, go on, Paul, after you. I was going to say, I mean, when it comes down to it, 
you know, I've had lots of salespeople work for me. And if they don't make, in some respects, if they're not making additional margin and adding value for the client, then you may as well go and buy something off the internet. But I think that over time, yes, the pandemic's had an impact because there's a lot of things that have been sold the expensive way, which could have been bought a cheaper way. And, and we've and too many businesses haven't really addressed fundamentally how they go to market and how they sell it. There's no point in talking to a salesperson if they're not adding value. Now, you know, that value means different things in different markets, in different businesses, but nevertheless, they have to be adding value, otherwise they're just taking up time. And, you know, so in some respects, we don't do ourselves any favors by constantly trying to sort of add value where some, in some cases it's not necessary. You know, if you want to buy something and you can have it delivered tomorrow from Amazon and you know what you're buying, then why wouldn't you? Why would you talk to somebody? If you want something that's fund, you know, an extension on your house, it's probably not a good example, but you know, just something that little bit more complicated that you're not sure about, then that's where you need some help and input. And you ought to be able to have the confidence that if you speak to a salesperson or you know whatever we want to call them in this modern age where sales is a dirty word, then you want them to be able to come back to you with some information and to help you and to work with you to to a successful conclusion. But then you've got to be in, you know, you've got to be in it at the beginning. You know, statistically, if you're the first person they talk to, then you will win the business at the end as long as you do the job properly. In the last uh, launch, we did one earlier for Asia Pacific and the Middle East. And Simon Byrne made a really profound uh, point, which is that sales should express the nobility of the organization. And I, I don't want to sound uh, overly lofty or philosophical about this, but we are the sharp, the, the pointy end of the spear when it comes to working with uh, a customer. And instead of being the department that everyone complains about, we should be the ones that everybody is saying, thank God we've got these salespeople. And the customers should welcome us. But too little of that happens. You know, you've got the top half to 2% of salespeople where that is absolutely the case. And I'm blessed to have spent a lot of time talking to uh, those sorts of people. But what I see far too often is sales is just used as a bludgeon to try and drag in revenue and get a transaction over the line. And there isn't enough emphasis on thinking as the customer. So I want to bring Vlad in at this point to talk about you spend a lot of your working life dealing with senior executives. You've got the senior executive forum. What is it that those senior executives are telling you about what they want and need from sales as a profession? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think nine out of 10 will say what I need from sales professionals is to get out of my sight and get out of my way. <laughs> I don't want them to disrupt my day with cold calls. I don't even want them to disrupt my day with hot calls by making appointments through my PA. I just don't want them. Get out. Get away from here. That's what they tell me. I think they're not being arrogant. They're not being stupid. I think most of us, and I put myself in that in that lot, most of our salespeople are guilty for this because we create that impression. We create that kind of stereotype that salespeople are intrusive, stupid people who just uh, eat your time and don't add any value. Because he has already done his research. This CEO I talked to, doesn't do research himself. He doesn't go on Google to find the next best core banking system. Let's say this is one, one piece of B2B product that <laughs> I've been selling. It says they don't go to Google to find the next best. They go to their network and they speak to their peers. They come to my events. This senior executive forum was for that purpose. It's a networking kind of club for senior executives where they over drinks, they gossip and they share experiences and they tell each other, look, I just got that one and my people are learning it, but it's a very steep learning curve and it's not a very good software, to be honest. Uh, I have already bought a three-year license and I'm stuck with it, but I'm not sure I will keep it if uh, take up by my, my people doesn't improve. And they talk these things over drinks and that's their research. 
and they end up with a short list of uh, three, four recommended solutions, which then they approach. They don't want the salesman to knock on their door. They approach, and they don't issue an RFI or RFP as is customary in the, in the tech business, and it's customary in many other B2B businesses. They don't issue the formal procurement uh, document to invite people to start pitching. They just go and find a contact that could explain to them things and answer questions, which is basically the job of a salesman, but they don't ask for a salesman. They say, can one tell me a little bit more about this particular aspect of the product, uh, which they expect to be uh, explained to them, either by the person who himself designed that product, so they want the salesman, they want the, the head of product development to come and explain it to them, or they even want some senior people at their own level, at sea level, to come and, and answer their questions. And this is their perspective. I got to understand that perspective by hosting their networking meetings. But nobody did that research. Normally, uh, a sales organization, especially a company with more than one salesman, even if it has only one salesman, they, they should do this. A company of, of any size and caliber in B2B should do their research with decision makers on the buying side. What I learned over drinks in networking could be done more scientifically and in a structured, disciplined way uh, with uh, well-prepared questions uh, asked during conversations, not the questionnaire you send out, having conversations and recording, documenting those conversations, and then meticulously analyzing. Excellent, Marie. I've done that for the last 15 years. Um, (laughs) it's, It's definitely not fancy regressional analysis, but it's a mixture of informal as well as formal communications with buyers across 10 different industries and across different seniority levels. What you described are one of the findings that I found. It kind of leads back to what we talked about, which is the trust element, right? There will be, when they hear a salesperson talk about it, there is already an in, in natural bias, right? Unfortunately, it's natural. There's a natural bias that this salesperson is going to spin it in a way that's positive for them. At the second point, the reason why they want senior people isn't because they want necessarily senior people because it makes them feel good. It's because they feel that the senior people are more likely going to be able to answer the questions that they have. Um, and, and it seems that salespeople aren't being trained and guided in a way. We expect salespeople to sell to senior people, yet we don't, we don't train them, we don't mold them and encourage them to become and think like senior level people. I couldn't agree more. So it's not that the buyers want senior people because the senior, there are small elements. It's they want senior people because they seem to know the answers, not the salespeople. I, so I, what I, you I, say, Vlado, makes sense. I've just conducted a series of interviews with CXOs, so a dozen or two CEOs, CMOs, CFOs, COOs, uh, yep. chief customer experience officers, chief sales officers, chief revenue officers, and without exception. Every one of them is saying, I want to leave a meeting with a salesperson smarter than when I came in. And that speaks to what you guys have just said. The second thing is that I want it to be directly relevant to where I am at the moment and the things I am trying to achieve. No one buys stuff for their business because they don't want to create value. So there needs to be an understanding of what the customer is trying to achieve and the value they are trying to create. And they have a limited resource in terms of time and money. And what they also want is the sense of safety that you are helping them mitigate risk. And the moment you fail to demonstrate that you will mitigate risk or uh, transfer that safety to the buyer, the conversation will either come to a grinding halt or they will just beat the crap out of you on price because they're going to have to pay for things if they go wrong. So I think we have to become uh, far better at listening to the customer. And in fact, interestingly enough, in the LinkedIn State of the Nation report, that was the number one thing that customers were looking for. They want salespeople to listen actively and empathically. And I think what they missed was the surgical listening, listening for insight and listening to understand what's really going on, what the underlying themes are that a customer is trying to achieve. Now, 
very few salespeople, particularly when they're selling to enterprise, actually bother to listen to analyst calls. A tiny proportion will read the transcript. But what you miss by not listening to the transcript is you don't hear where the executive stumbles. You don't hear the emotion. And I think part of the problem here is lack of preparation. The best salespeople I know are inveterate planners. They're rehearsers. They don't come up with the wine, I don't like role play. Simulation is a superpower for salespeople. Now, Paul, let me bring you in on this because I know that you know, you've worked with many, many businesses over the years, both direct and also through the channel. How critical is it that a vendor is working both with their salespeople and with their channel partners to prepare? And what goes wrong if they don't? In any given sales situation, I mean, certainly in the channel, if the issues inevitably are that the, you've got the vendor's objectives and the, you know, and the partner's objectives are often off because the partner's putting a number of vendors together. And typically, the vendors don't understand end user sales and the channel has to manage that. And if they don't work together, then from the client's perspective or the prospect's perspective, it's just confusing. They get different stories from different people. And where it works, where you actually get that alignment, it's a force to be reckoned with. There's nothing that works better. But of course, most most vendors are driven by a number in simple terms. And, you know, American vendors particularly are quarter to quarter. And that's what they do. And that's their driving force. And if you're a £10 million computer solution provider in the UK, you know, you're not driven on a quarter by quarter basis necessarily. And so you get things out, out of kilter. But, you know, where you can sit down, I mean, in the good old days, he says, I did enterprise and, and we used to work with the, the actual account manager. So rather than the channel team, we would work with the account manager of the accounts that we work with. So I would work with the IBM account manager for you know, the enterprise accounts that I worked on. And we would work together, genuinely work together as a part of an account team. And 95 times out of 100, that worked very, very well. Because we were aligned, because we knew our, our own parts, because we could feed in, and you know they could go to the CEO as IBM and have a meeting that perhaps we couldn't because you know we were a much smaller organization or not not perceived to be as grand, I guess. I want to build on that because I think whilst that is brilliant, I think there is a, an even better way. And it comes back to this concept of uh, selling with partnership skills. If you haven't read Fred Copestake's book uh, of that title, I urge you to do so. And also take the partner uh, quotient test to see how effective you can uh, you are as a partner seller, partnership seller. And one of the most important things that I think we can do as a community is start co-developing solutions with the customer and with the channel partners where you're selling it through third parties and bring everybody together. So one of the outputs from this community that I hope to build is a space where we can create a virtual war room, if you like, where we will bring all the assets and the information together, where the vendor plus all of their internal team operations, pre-sales, consultants, pricing, um, marketing, all work together in this space with the partners and with the customers. And we develop a series of tools that allow the customer to get their fingerprints all over the solution. Because one of the lessons I learned early on in my Sandler career is prospects never argue with their own data. And it's far better if we co-develop the solution with them rather than trying to shoehorn them into our product or our service. And what I see is far too many people trying to become the authority in their space and be a trusted advisor, but what they're not is a trusted partner. What they're trying to do is tell people that we are the best and you should do things our way. The best kind of product development is the one that is developed hand in glove with the customer. And it requires us to speak to two distinctly different constituents. 
we need to get the voice of the customer and we need to speak to our raving fans, the ones who we've really helped motor their business. But I think the other side is we need to speak to the ones who hate us, where we've screwed up. What's really interesting is Salesforce did um, a research study called Experience the Shift. And if any of you want a copy of that research, then please email me or DM me either uh, on LinkedIn or Facebook. And one of the really interesting bits of output is that companies that speak to unhappy customers have a 600% faster product development cycle. I mean, just think about that. If you could get to market six times faster than your comp uh, competition, what kind of an edge would that give you? How much more relevant would you be? So what I'm amazed by is the lack of courage in our industry to invite people to criticize. And you know, right at the beginning, I put up uh, this banner. What would happen? If we ask ourselves, uh, our customers, how did I do in our conversation today? Have you seen better? And if you have, what did that look like? How could I improve? And I think self-reflection is an area that we as a profession need to improve dramatically. Thoughts, Moeed? Yeah, gosh, there's, there was so much in there. So, so the, <laughs> the last point that you made in self-reflection, I wrote an article around that the markers of high-performance salespeople, self-reflection was one of them. Asking the customer. Can you share that? I can share that. And, uh, do you want me to share it in the... In the if you can in the share it in the now? And then, well, fi finish your point. One of them is self-reflection for sure, right? And it's... And, and what, you know, speak, asking the customer, asking the buyer, whoever it is you're engaging with, just casually, right? Not, not without like a form. Exactly as you said, that is brilliant. I think if if more if salespeople did that, they would find that their results would skyrocket because you are hearing it from them directly in their language, but also self-reflection on their own part. So when they finish a call or a meeting, they're writing down. There's science behind writing down, right? It, not typing it, not just thinking about it. Writing it down actually improves the memory and and the assimilation of the information. But writing down what didn't went, what didn't go well, and what one or two things will I change or practice more going forward? I did this because someone advised me about doing this early on in my sales career. I found that my conversations were just they just completely changed. That was one of them. Having buyers involved in the product development process. So I spent six years being a commercial director for a function in in a company called CB, which has now been acquired, on helping chief R&D officers improve the way that R&D performs in their company. One of them was this concept of pseudo-prototyping. And it was taken from a case study with a company called D-Bold. So D-Bold creates all the ATM machines and a lot of other drive-through mechanical uh, kind of technology, et cetera. But they did this thing around pseudo-prototyping, which is pulling back the engineers on perfection and saying, just make a pseudo-prototype, and this is what pseudo-prototype will look like. And then at that stage, we're going to work with our buyers to come and actually co-create it with us. And what they found was that all the engineers and the marketers had their own view on things. Invariably, it's internal to the business. So you're going to be influenced and conditioned by the business. Once you brought in a buyer, they completely change the direction of this. In fact, they may not even just change the direction. They would probably just change the language and say, ah, that's great because this is what it helps us do. So all of a sudden, the marketer had gold in terms of communication and messaging from their own language. The data shows that pseudo-prototyping and having the buyers involved in the development process results in incredible business success. And then the final one around you know, sales... You know, it sounds more and more to me as if sales, in my view, are, you talk about trusted advisors. I think that they are decision-making agents. What I mean by that is the best salespeople I know are those that step into a buyer's organization and say, forget about, not forget about our product and service. Let, let me understand what you need. Let's listen to what you have to say. Let's ask the right questions but I'm going to help you make the right decision. And by the way, that right, that right decision may, may not lead to us. But 
we're helping you make the right decision. For example, when someone sells, well, we, we need to improve sales, et cetera, et cetera. And someone might say, well, we think it's trading or we think it's a CRM platform. You know, I've heard salespeople say, well, hang on a second there. You've got a CRM platform. The problem isn't that the CRM platform isn't, it's not that you don't have a CRM platform, you don't have the right one. It's just there's something wrong with the process, i.e. either the salespeople are not inputting the information. It's probably designed in a way that salespeople just would rather poke their eyes out than put the information in. Or there's an analytical element that's not helping you inform your sales process and educating your salespeople. So salespeople help those buyers make decisions. Every person in the world wants someone that will help them see into the future. And they, they want someone that they can trust to just give them an impartial view. I think the smaller businesses are, in some ways, probably those that are going to take this on what we're talking about a lot more. Because as Paul says, they're in a position where they're not, they're not held by the quarterly targets. They're in a position to do things in the right way for longevity. Well, you say that, but one of my big bugbears is uh, companies that are privately held and still work on quarterly accounting. Uh, they are putting the accounting horse, uh, accounting cart before the delivery outcome horse. The problem is that when investors come in, their objectives are dramatically different to the customer's objectives. And the net result of that is that we end up propagating some really bloody awful behaviors. The unintended consequence of having speculators and gamblers, ex-football players and dentists who think that they somehow, just because they've got money, know how to run a fucking business. It just drives me insane. And they're, yeah, they're, they're right, yeah. fixated on the, the money bit. Accountants should not run businesses. Business people should run businesses. Finance absolutely has its place. But the route to CEO so often is the CFO pathway. Yep. One of the ideas that I do have, and again, if anyone wants to partner with me on this, I believe that in the next few months, we are going to see a mass of layoffs of very experienced people. And some of those people will be looking to retrain and move into a different discipline. And I believe that there is an opportunity as recruiters to take on board gray-haired, balding, fat old folk like us, uh, well, not um, um, Moeed because he looks desperately young, and retrain them and train them properly because they understand what it's like to be on the other side of the desk. You know, you see the Pareto laws and those sorts of organizations doing the training and uh, placing graduates. And I'm all in favor of fresh mm -hmm. blood coming in. But I think there is a wealth of experience and it will increase the levels of diversity. It will increase the range of experience. And both of those things will massively enhance the profession. And so I'd like to bring in, because I, I touched on it earlier, but we got diverted. And I really want to bring in this subject around diversity. We keep talking about salesmen, but eight out of 10 of the top salespeople I know are women. And women are outperforming men routinely in sales. And without wanting to paint them all with the same brush, they fucking listen. They listen with empathy. And they're not there to try and peddle. They're there to help. One of my favorite salespeople on the planet is a lady called Caroline Pino. She just won Top Salesperson of the Year Award with Splunk in her first year in the company. And bear in mind, she got diagnosed with cancer uh, in her first month while she was on initial training. And get this, with only two hours of working time a day, she generated 360% of quota. Now, what does that tell us? Well, the first thing it tells us is most of us are really inefficient. If you can generate 360% of quota, only working 25% of a working day, Okay, and the quota was big, so don't think she got off nice and easy. The other thing is that she turned up knowing that she was going to be constrained, and she turned up, and her opening line is, I am here to help. That's all I'm going to do. Whether I can help you or not directly, I am here to help. And she worked with four key accounts, 
And at the end of the year, she came out at 360% a quota. Now, who the hell wouldn't want one of them on the team? <laughs> okay. So um, I, I think one of the problems with our industry is it is very he psychology led. And I think we need to start thinking and generating far more diversity, not only in terms of gender, but also age, experience, background, and the experience of selling into you know, ERP systems into finance. In all honesty, I've worked in 500 segments of the market over the last uh, 17, 18 years, and all it took was five or six conversations to be able to understand 90% of what I needed. So experience isn't the thing, but there are a couple of things that I'd like to uh, bring in here. The first thing is, how can we shift the bias and increase the balance so that we have a more diverse sales force? So let's start with that one. Paul. I mean, I've always seen there to be more men than women, but I've never, I've never considered there to be any, any major difference. My daughter works for Salesforce and she works in what appears to be a largely sort of female team. My daughter-in-law works for Salesforce. You know, if I would take, I hesitate to say I would take a woman over a man given half a chance, but, you know, but in many respects, you're right that they it's far more empathetic and it's, and it's less challenging in some respects. And I think you have to look for the, the people that fit in the environment that you're actually whatever your products and client prospects are, are so that you're getting the right match of people because up to press it's been we you know, we have to be something of a chameleon to be able to get on with lots and lots of different people in different um in different environments and and, and different backgrounds and you know, I don't I, I've never seen an issue with it I mean it, it and I get really frustrated I get really frustrated when people go on about the more people that want to come into sales, regardless of what, what they look like, what their background, what their gender, if, you know, if they haven't got a gender, it doesn't matter. It's about serving the prospect. And, and we, have to, we have to be open. You know, I come from a generation where girls did typing at school. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is something that I repeat a lot because, you know, I, I spend half of my life using a keyboard these days. And had I have known that, I would have joined their lessons. <laughs> but, but but at the end of it, that's that's where I come from. You know, I went to work. My first job was at a, a, a computer center where there were 115 punch girls because they were all girls producing punch cards. And the world's moved on since then. And I've seen the world move on since then. And I don't I don't get it in, in some respects. I mean, I, you know, I listen to a lot of these sort of bias and things. And I want people that can do the job, who can identify with prospects, who can go and, you know, in its in its hardest point, deliver a number, because regardless of you know, everything else, we need people to deliver a number. But, you know, they have to care. They have to have the right attitude. And it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Some of it is is perpetuated. I mean, it's interesting you talk about recruiters, and he said he's now going to sort of put his head put his head in a noose because I don't actually know who else is who's looking at this. But the issue with recruiters is you talk about taking on older people, more experience, and so on. And I'm absolutely with you, and I'll do whatever you know we can do something together on that. That would be great because I think there's there's a massive swathe of people today of a certain age that you know have a broad depth of knowledge who would be happy uh, to get involved but the recruiters don't typically they don't help with that because if the client says they want you know a bloke to do the job or a woman to do the job and the number of recruiters who have said to me you can't say this but do you want a man or a woman and we'll you know and they'll manipulate the situation in the middle or they right. Recruitment is a busted flush. Let's be honest about it. It's a, an absolutely vile environment. Right. Most they've created those conditions for themselves. Yeah. I love recruitment. I think it's what it is the single most important function of any manager and any leader. And prospecting for new candidates should be a daily activity. But most most managers uh, recruit reactively, and then they have to take the compromise candidate that's available. 
that is an act of idiocy and self-sabotage that pretty much o- overrides every other act of idiocy that they perform. Sorry, Paul, go on. The issue is that the recruiting company will say they want somebody who's, I don't know, 30 to 35, whatever. But then the, the recruiters wouldn't say, well, have you thought of, we've had some success placing people with this experience in your sort of business. They do as they're told because they don't have the respect of the, you know, the recruiting companies to be able to add that value. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose it's something I agree with you. Absolutely. There's going to be an absolute raft of people with special experience and backgrounds that were going to be absolutely fabulous in the organizations that, that we know given half a chance and some support in some respects, we talk about understanding business and, these people understand business. Um, well, on that note, because uh, Joe asked the question, as a non-business owner, how can he develop an understanding of business? So if we can bring you in, Vlad. Well, in my experience, the best way is to make people feel they are the business owner. I have been made feel this at the very, very early stage in my career when uh, I was nowhere near the, the top of the hierarchy, I was actually at the very bottom, but I was thrown in at the deep end by my CEO and forever grateful to him to talk at the age of 26, to talk to other CEOs and to, to sell to them without even calling it selling. I was sent to talk to them. And I had to come back and report what they told me and what I told them and how the conversation went and I, I got to understand them because that was the, the training approach of, of my CEO back then. Then I realized she is kind of letting me, it wasn't official, it wasn't a training policy or something. It was letting me mirror his strategic thinking. And I like worked side by side with the CEO, understanding how this whole big business works and talking to his peers, the other C people, C-level people, I understood how big businesses work and, and, and what are the complex uh, structures and decision-making paths in them at a very, very early age. And that has led me to, over the many years of work life, to do the same with junior people I recruit and train and coach and mentor, to give them a helicopter view, as we used to call it. Now we'll have to call it a drone view instead of bird's eye view of the business. I want them to understand from early days the complexity of, of issues that senior people have to observe, uh, analyze, understand, and make decisions upon, and to put in their mindset that decision-making process, that decision-making logic. And then they become excellent salespeople, even if they're not in a sales job. Some of the best sales uh, achievements have been done in my organizations by people whose role was not sales. But they understand the customer, they can talk the same language, no matter of age difference. Forget about gender and all the other now fashionable dimensions of equality and diversity. Age is a proxy for experience, and that discrimination by age has had for many years that logical, rational justification that you can only become experienced with age. You're not experienced when you're young. But the reality is, if you are Conditioned, if you are coached, if you are put in, in situations where you start understanding counterparts, regardless of age difference. I had this girl, uh, and again, it happens to be a girl. I never ever boasted that I'm in equality and diversity <laughs> manager, but that's what happened. This girl, who was straight out of university, who I decided to coach in the same way, I sent her to talk to very senior people. And she came back and started bringing me incredible insight. And she very quickly joined our most senior team at an age with at least 20 years of difference. And she didn't have sales responsibilities, but she brought about 80% of the new revenue generated. (laughs) By having the right conversations with the right tone, with the right language she uses with very senior people. And nobody counts her as this junior young thing. Everybody sees an equal. Absolutely. Uh, How you show up makes a huge difference. If you if you act as if, in fact, if you behave like one of your customers, 
and you think like they do. There was this uh, colleague of mine, cynically, he said, because he looked exactly in the wrong way, junior and senior on gender and all those things. And he said, before a meeting, uh, because I was uh, kind of coach, and he told me, tell her to put the shorter skirt when she goes there. <laughs> and, and that's how some people think about sending a young lady to talk to a potential business uh, client, a prospect. Right. Yeah, so to answer Joe, Joe Peck's question, three things. Number one is Warren Buffett said that accounting is the language of business. So if you don't know accounting, you cannot speak the language of business. You cannot speak the language of how your business owners are thinking. So learn. There are plenty of books. There are plenty of resources. I have them on my YouTube channel where we analyze different companies every, every week and we run through their financials. We teach you how to look at the financial statements, how to draw inferences and understand the business. So learn accounting. If you want to think like a business owner, if you don't have the background, you haven't been a business owner, learn the language. Number two, if you sell to buyers, CTO, CMO, CSO, et cetera, if you have those kind of people in your company, spend the time and sit down with them and ask them and say, tell me about your typical day. Tell me about how you plan for X. Don't give me the answers that you think you should give me. I want to observe how you do that during your day. If you take the time to do so over a period, you will learn very quickly what their day looks like, right? And their frustration. And then the final one is, you know, there's so much resources out there where you can start to listen and learn from business owners. Be careful about who you choose, of mm -hmm. course, right? There's that caveat. There's a lot of people out there. But once you've selected the right people, it is incredibly easy to get a lot of information about how they think, how they view the world, right? And that's really important. It's how they view the world that makes them in some ways different. So, Joe, hopefully that's helpful. Those are the three Thank things you. that I would say are absolutely essential to, to think Thank like you. a business owner. Paul, I used to go and talk to, my, talk to my customers and ask them. I mean, I know that's kind of a staggering... <laughs> <laughs> sort of admission, but when I started, I started as an account manager for uh, Jaguar Cars, and I went to their senior purchaser and said, "Can you tell me about purchasing? Are there any books that you that you would read around, you know, your job, your purchasing?" And he looked at me like I'd just landed from another planet, and I said, "Well, I have to understand what's important to you and how you think and what you do for me to be able to." help and support you in doing that and he'd never been asked that before and and it but to me just it was kind of it just made sense and then you know if ever I had an issue I'd got clients and I'd phone them and say you know obviously you've got to have a relationship but I'd phone them and ask them I've got this I'm being told this how would that work for you how does that fit with you would that help your business or not and then you get the on the ground true view of what's going on you talk about your sort of getting put. I, I did a day some years ago now with Cisco because they can't sell or they couldn't sell to small businesses. And they, they did a day where they got some small businesses in. They got their marketing team in. And, and there was me and a couple of other people to sort of facilitate the day. And we spent all day telling them, or well, these small business people that they are trying to sell to, telling them what they want and how they need it. and. More often than not, one of the Cisco people would go, that's not what you want. What you want is, and you go, stop, <laughs> and just listen to what you're being told. Don't tell them that you know better because they're doing that, and it's staggering. Every salesperson should have the acronym STFU as their screensaver. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, you, you've got to listen. And the problem is that most salespeople cannot wait. They they listen to fill the for a, a gap in the um, the conversation so they can fill it with the sound of their own voice, and that's toxic. So, Joe, one bit of advice I would give you, and I'm going to build on what Moed and Paul and Faz have said, is identify people who are doing the jobs that you sell to, and people who you aspire to emulate in time, and contact them with this message. Moeed, 
I'm after a huge favor and feel free to say no. Your history is my future. I need to understand what it's like to be you. And I would really appreciate it if you'd be willing to be my mentor. Um, I promise you three things. One, I'll never waste your time. Two, I will always come prepared. And three, you can fire me at any point. Each month, I'll come to you for 20 minutes advice. And I will come with one question and the three things I've tried to solve it myself that haven't worked. And then I'll be looking for you to help me work out a solution. And like I said, anytime you can fire me, if it's not working for you, fire me. And do that and get half a dozen or a dozen of these mentors, and you would be amazed at just how many people will say yes. Now, the caveat is make sure uh, you contact people who have failed two or three times already, because then they know that they don't know everything, and they have the benefit of scar tissue. Okay? Really powerful. Look, guys, we're coming to the top of the hour, so we're going to have to wrap up. One final parting bit of advice that you can give to everybody to take the message out to their community, to their customers, their partners, and their peers, and their bosses, in order to elevate sales and make it a genuine powerhouse, a force for good, and an aspirational career choice. Vlad? I would uh, distill things that were already said uh, with reminding you of one key word that was mentioned, and the key word is help. And help is a four-letter word in the English language, which means it's a dirty word, like the F word, and we avoid it at all costs. So that lady that you mentioned, uh, Marcus, was very good because she started every new meeting with in the conversation. She said, I'm here to help. But help is a two-way thing, and you advise, just advise Joe to ask for help because that's a very powerful conversation starter as well. Instead of saying, I'm here to help, you can also say, I need your help. Absolutely. Um, that's intellectual. Use it two-way. Ask people for help. They will help you. People like helping others. Uh, and offer, uh, and that's, the, that's the key to building relationships and, and being an effective salesperson. And you have to have the intellectual humility and the vulnerability to ask for help. Salespeople who do not ask for help tend to be very brittle. And the question I would ask you to take away from today's conversation is who? Not how, but who? If you have a problem, go to the source and find out and ask the right who how they would do it. And you can bypass months and months of beating your head against the wall and getting it wrong. Paul, let me bring you in on the same thing. What One uh, choice bit of advice as a final word. I think that sales is a profession and we need to all go out and behave like professionals. And the more that we do that, and that means saying no and treating everything properly. And the more that we do that, the more that we will be treated like professionals. And until we start getting treated like professionals, it's very difficult to start moving things forwards. And this feeds another fundamental truth. You will only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. If you see yourself as a commodity provider who's peddling some cheap tap instead of the customer's equal, you'll get treated like a commodity provider. If you believe you have the right to play and to have conversations with senior executives and people throughout the organization, and you come with the right intent. And I I use the term, you need to arrive with love in your heart. And you have to have that genuine desire and intent to help and to serve. Moeed? Yeah, so very simple actually, but not, sorry, straightforward, but not simple. The best way to be that force for good is to act. It's going to be through your actions, not from what you say. So if you act as that person, as a force for good, if anyone, if anyone has been involved in uh, you know, raising teenagers, uh, you know, it's a humbling experience. They take their lessons from uh, how they watch you conduct yourself. So if you want to be that change for good, act as if. And Marcus and I did a really good podcast session on you know, how to be trustworthy. And we talked about character more than the competence. Act as if you are trustworthy. It's actually changed. So there's an eighth one now because I've completed the research on one point. 
but this is a great podcast for you to learn how to become trustworthy, not just learn it. Success is not just the knowledge you gain, it's the person you become. So act as if, set an example and lead by example. And if any of you want uh, to get access to that podcast, DM me, I'll send you the link and I'll pop it on the blurb when we publish this. So uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your input today. Incredibly useful. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, best of luck to everyone who's in this noble profession. Absolutely. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. So um, you'll see on the banner at the bottom, um, if you want to volunteer and you see this as a mission that you can be part of, this is about creating a community. It's not about me. It's not about the guests on the panel. It's about all of us creating the conditions and creating the mindset, the culture, uh, the behaviors, the compensation schemes, the recruitment processes. If you are expert in any of those fields and you're willing to volunteer, if you are good at using technologies that, frankly, I'm crap at, Clubhouse, I genuinely believe that that could be a fabulous platform for us to debate these discussions If you know how to make that work, if you've ever built a community, if you know how to use technologies like Miro or Mural, if you are good at organizational change, then please volunteer. DM me either on LinkedIn or Facebook or email me at marcusatlaughslast.com. And the final piece is uh, to remind you that what we're going to do is we're going to create these resources and assets, which will be freely available to everybody. The objective here is to elevate the profession and make us an aspirational choice for the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders. Okay, so uh, LinkedIn user, uh, you say you am willing, so please uh, DM me on LinkedIn. I'd be really grateful. For the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us today. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.